This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and Velcro. What a ripoff. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and is the love child of Chinese and introversion. What's holding you back from learning Chinese? John and I, we're going to talk about the most common things that keep people back from learning Chinese and how to overcome these and achieve your Chinese dreams. Guest interviews with Megan Amirati, a second-generation Chinese learner and a Fulbright scholar who overcame her own personal challenges of learning Chinese to bring her to the career she is in today. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah. Hey guys, I am John Pasden, and I am in Shanghai, China. John, you don't even know what I said about you in the intro, do you? I never do. <laughs> Before we kick into our episode, we've got some great reviews. I'll lead us off with a review and question from Commander Gandalf. Insightful, informative podcast. Learning Chinese, I have four words for you. One, two, three, four. Listen to this podcast. Host Jerry Turner and John Pasden, also the founders of Wonderful Manor Companion Series. Hey, hey. Share tips about learning Mandarin Chinese and discuss a variety of topics useful to anyone learning the language. Peppered with wit, aha, with their dozens of episodes have motivated me on my personal language learning journey. I've listened to episodes while biking to school, going on hikes and cleaning. The stories shared during the interviews have shown me I'm not alone on this adventure and opened my eyes to a plethora of resources and interesting stories. Keep it up, guys. Thanks so much for the podcast. P.S. He had a question. He says, my reading skills are relatively good. I have a theoretical knowledge up to the HSK3 level. However, when I try to speak with my tutor, I find my vocabulary has shrunk down to about 100 words. Outside of these lessons, there is little opportunity in my country to practice. How would you recommend I improve my active vocabulary? Five stars, of course. Well, thanks, Commander Gandalf. I like your username. So, John, what would you have to say for Mr. Gandalf? So not being able to remember the words that you need or what you want to say is typically just not enough practice, but that's too easy of a response, right? Just practice more. So what I would say is if you know you're going to have a conversation with your tutor and you can set the topic ahead of time, then what really helps is to like write a little essay or maybe just write some notes about all the things you want to say. And so ahead of time, you can figure out what words you're going to forget, look them up, write them down. Uh, hopefully, they're words you've already studied. You just need to recall them. And then having done all that in advance, written down in front of you as a cheat sheet, you should be able to have the conversation much more easily. If your tutor's good, there's going to be lots of repetition of those words. You're going to say them. You're going to hear them. You're going to say them again. You're going to hear them again. And uh, that's going to help you a lot. Yeah. And I would say for Commander Gandalf, can I, can I just call you Commander G? Commander G-Force. All right. Good. So Commander G-Force, what I would say is you're just not getting enough exposure to the language. If you were, it would push more of it into your working vocabulary. And so I would even say you're saying well, your reading skills are relatively good. Well, work on those too. Just read more. And if you've read everything, reread it. And you just get a lot more input and things will feel more natural and more comfortable to you. And you'll be more naturally likely to use them. So there you go. Thanks, Commander G-Force. Okay, so now I've got a review from Cody the Coder in Australia. Great motivation and immediately useful tips. I've listened to this podcast since it began. It's a great resource for absolute beginners through upper intermediate learners. Every time I listen to an episode, it gives me the space to reflect on and improve my studies. Jared and John's tips and advice are an invaluable resource, and they have helped me through more sticking points than I can count. Oftentimes, it is as simple as being reminded that there are lots of ways to learn and that I shouldn't get stuck too far down a path that isn't productive. Awesome. Jared and John have been there and have a wealth of recommendations ready to share with everyone. Mm -hmm. I've also really enjoyed hearing the stories from people who have achieved high proficiency. And it's so motivating to hear how each one has managed to break through their own barriers to reach the next level. If you're looking for a podcast to listen to when your brain needs a break, but you still want to learn, this is the one. Wait a minute. When your brain needs a break, Jared, are we just like mindless fluff now? No, maybe. Maybe, I guess. That's Jared's part, right? <laughs> We're good for something, Don, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Cody. Glad we're uh, giving your brain a break and helping you learn. I have a few more reviews from Pan Laoshi. Last episode, we read a few reviews from her students in her high school class. And so I've got some more here. Maddie 
Ando. She says, I love listening to your podcast. They're very engaging and provide great insights on the Chinese language and its culture. I definitely recommend them to anyone who wants to learn how to learn Chinese or learn more about its culture, or even just for a fun and interesting podcast. Thanks, Maddie. And Trip says, your podcasts are fun, engaging, and eye-opening. I've listened to five episodes so far, and I'm loving them. I love how you have strategies to increase your knowledge of Chinese characters and pinyin. All right. Well, thanks, Trip. And hey, man, those are rookie numbers. You got to you gotta pump those up, man. Five podcasts. Let's get going, dude, right? Hey, then this is episode 50. And we have one more from Sean. Uh, she says, the podcasts are always very interesting to listen to, as they always teach me new things about the culture, grammar, and even new words that I don't know. They're very entertaining to watch. I think she means listen. And I love learning by listening to them. All right. Thanks, Sean. We appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Yes. Thanks a lot, guys. And I have one more. This one is from Julesy Bear in Canada. She says, super cool, not just pretty cool. Hey, thank you guys for reading my review and looking for some more gender balance. That's awesome. And you're awesome. We'll be telling my Chinese class about it. The class consists, for whatever reason, of all women. So I'm sure this will be well received. Yeah, we definitely are taking that seriously. You're right, Julesy Bear. And I think you're going to love the interview on this episode. It's a really good one. And we have more balanced guests in the pipeline, so stay tuned. All right, so Jared, we're coming off of a, a four-part series on how to learn to read. So today we're going to turn the topic to a bit more, you know, kind of introspective, kind of about feelings and psychology. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about fear, because I think for a lot of us, and this is myself included, Sometimes fear holds you back. And let's be honest. I think that Chinese is a little bit scary when you are just getting started learning it. Oh, yeah. I always say how when you're just starting to learn Chinese, all characters look like spooky animals. All right. Before I launch into my own story, I'll give you a little quote here. See if you recognize this quote, Jared. All right. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Uh, yes, that is from the Dune Chronicles. It's the Tesseract is the litany, fear litany thing. Jared's nerd cred is intact. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you a little story. Back when I first started learning Chinese a long, long time ago, over 20 years ago, man, I had already been studying Japanese for a while. And actually, when I decided to start studying Japanese, I had chosen it over Chinese because I was afraid of Chinese. And specifically, I was afraid of the tones because... I'm not a good singer. I feel like I don't have a good ear. I don't have good pitch. So I felt like tones would be quite a challenge. And by the way, I was right. And so I avoided it. But eventually I did come back because Chinese just seemed super interesting. China seemed super interesting. Wanted to go there. Wanted to talk to people. Wanted to have China adventures. So I eventually did tackle Chinese. And I eventually overcame the tones. Do you remember, Jared, what was like the scariest thing about getting started learning Chinese for you? Oh, I, I think I was scared that I was never really going to be able to learn the language. When I first started studying, it was like, this was just so foreign. And I, I think I really had that doubt. Like you felt like you were always going to be in this state where you can't really understand what people are saying to you and you can't communicate what you wanted to say? Yeah, that's still kind of normal that way. But... <laughs> You know, I was just kind of worried that I was never going to get to a level of like even conversation. Right, right. And I, th I think for, for some people, especially expats living in China, uh, motivation to learn Chinese isn't great. It's kind of like pain elimination. Like every interaction is so painful. I just want to have a life that's a little bit less painful mm -hmm. and stay in China. But that's not really a great motivation, right? No. Like uh, one, one of the things that I ask my clients, the ones here in Shanghai, I ask them, what would you do if tomorrow you woke up and you were fluent in Chinese? If you're focused on just elimination of pain, then you don't know how to answer that question. But if you have some kind of positive motivation, like things you really want to do in Chinese, then you will have an answer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because avoiding pain, that can be a strong motivator, but that doesn't help you really reach your full potential when it's something that we choose and we actively want to do. Right. And I think this can also expose some motivations which are a little bit uh, weak. For example, I want to be able to learn to read a Chinese newspaper. All right, fine. But if you woke up tomorrow and you were totally fluent, would you spend all day reading the newspaper in a state of ecstasy? 
like just reading the news. <laughs> Maybe they love reading propaganda. They want to see what the government's talking about now. You know, that can be yeah. interesting. Yeah. Fine. But if you think about it, and you're like, yeah, actually, I would probably read one article, scan the headlines, and then stop. Well, then maybe it's not the best thing to be focusing on. And maybe actually there are other fears that are holding you back. So I just wanted to share a little bit of another story that came from my past. So I was originally afraid of pronunciation, but I started studying Chinese in college at the University of Florida. And I thought my pronunciation was okay, but when I came to China, it was terrible. People could not understand me. And one of the big fears I had was I had a speech impediment in English. Mm. And when I was little, I talked this stereotypical kid's speech impediment, kind of like Elmer Fudd. and a Peach impediment. Yeah, Donald Duck all, all rolled into one. Like my R's were messed up, my S's were messed up, my SH's, my CH's. I had a lot of problems. And I went through speech therapy for years to get over that. And I have my mom to thank because I didn't want to go and she forced me to go. And eventually I got to the point where my speech impediment was not obvious and only people with a really good ear or people who have had the same issue could even notice. And so I felt like, all right, this is good enough. But it wasn't until I came to China and I started getting really hardcore about improving my pronunciation because I knew that my X, Q, and J sounds were wrong. And I knew that X, Q, and J were different from SH, CH, and ZH in Chinese. And I really wanted to get clear on the difference. And I knew I was more and more interested in linguistics. So I felt like I needed to understand this and I needed to be able to apply it. You know, applied linguistics was eventually my path. And it wasn't until I got really clear on those details with the help of a, a linguist teacher that not only did I get it in Chinese, but I was able to correct the, the pronunciation errors that I had my entire life in English. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was crazy. And I had actually had to go back and systematically correct every word in English, you know, the way I pronounced it for S-H, C-H, and J, including my own name. Wow. So I was able to overcome the consonant sounds of Chinese fear, and then I was able to tackle the tone issues, discovering tone pairs, uh, which I later became a big proponent of. You know, I've been ever since. That also helped a ton with my Chinese pronunciation, going beyond the individual syllables into tone pairs. But then I think one thing that became a bigger fear as I got past the pronunciation issues was just this idea that, you know, there's so many characters and I'm learning them slowly. I'm learning to read Chinese. This was my thinking at the time. But I'd also noticed that I was forgetting some characters. And, you know, if I tried to write, then I, I could recall a lot less. And I just kind of had this fear of like, what if I'm not going to retain these? What if I'm just building my castle on sand and it's just never going to get very high and I'm just going to be spinning my wheels? That's a fear I shared. So that fear, I feel like I don't need to go into it too much because, you know, we've talked about things like SRS software. Some people feel like that helps a lot or just reading. Uh, reading is the original spaced repetition. And they're getting my Chinese to the point where I can read a lot. And a lot of the words that I'm reading, I can understand, but realize I don't even need to use. So if I forget them, it's okay. You know, like I give myself permission to forget some of the stuff. That was good. So yeah, I just got to keep pushing through, pretty much all these fears are surmountable. And hopefully we're, we're providing examples of other learners who have had the same fears and they've overcome them. I think you're bringing up some really good points here about just some of these fears that you have dealt with over the years. And I think it's good to even address that on a wider scale of like, you know, what are these fears that really can stop us and hold us back from reaching our potential in Chinese? And heck, maybe in any other language or even our potential in life. But I think, you know, we'll really kind of confine this here to learning Chinese. But, you know, I think one of the big things is, is just sometimes, you know, we're afraid of looking dumb because we're just learning the language. We don't have a good command of it and we're going to say things that are wrong. So and maybe it's not just looking dumb, but just the fear of being wrong. Right. It's a fear that, hey, I said something that was incorrect. You're also afraid of just being judged. That's also rooted together of just, you know, being wrong, but someone's going to judge you, think less of you. But there's also that thing of, you know, really that we need those opportunities to speak. And sometimes we're, you know, afraid to step outside of ourselves and go, you know, strike up a conversation with someone that can be very difficult for some people. That's a good one. I can identify with that one, too. Oh, one, one other that I don't know if you've ever experienced, Jared, is this fear of just being bad at something. Because like some of us are like, mm -hmm. you know, really good students in school. 
and we think of learning a language as kind of a school subject, but Chinese is just so foreign. And like, what if I study it and I just can't do it and I'm just terrible at it? I don't even want to try. If I'm just going to be wasting my time, and I'm never going to be good at it. John, I think this goes back to there's a concept called a fixed mindset or growth mindset,、mm. and、uh, this is also a, a good topic because we discuss this in the interview that we have today. Fixed mindset is this: you kind of say like, okay, you know, someone says, oh, your Chinese is good, or oh, your pronunciation is good, and maybe they're just being polite, and it really sucks, right? When a fixed mindset, it's kind of like, oh. My Chinese is good, therefore I need to maintain that perception all the time. So、mm. I'm purposely going to avoid, you know, difficult things that might challenge my language, so I don't get into situations where I'm going to look bad. This is similar to maybe someone in school or at university where they had a 4.0, but they took like all the easy classes. <laughs> you know, they avoided anything hard that was going to really challenge them, so they wouldn't have a bad grade. Hmm. So this is a little bit of that concept of having a fixed mindset of like you know this is what I am therefore I have to do everything I can to maintain that perception of myself and others' perception of me in that way. But having that growth mindset, we look at effort, right? You know, did you put in good effort? Maybe I did bad, but I can do better, and I'm just going to keep working in that. It's something that you know you look at your life and everything is a process of growing and learning and progressing and maturing. Yeah, and also when you say growth mindset, I think what you should be asking is, are you getting better? So, yeah, maybe you're terrible now. If you haven't talked to this person in Chinese in half a year, when they talk to you, can they tell you're better? And can you believe them? Because if you're seeing growth, if you're seeing progress, that's all that matters, right? And it reminds me of a joke I was told early on about the four stages of learning Chinese. I think I may have mentioned this before. Stage one, you know nothing. Stage two. You think you know everything. Stage three, you're afraid you'll never know anything, and then stage four, you realize you know just a little bit. John, what kind of situation could you get in where you'd be totally lost? Probably literature. I haven't read a whole lot of literature, you know, some. So if you want to like analyze literature, yee, <laughs> I could do that in English, but not so much in Chinese. So think of it, anyone listening here, like you're at a dinner party and you're standing around with a group of people, and the conversation starts up about some sort of topic that you know absolutely nothing about, and you have nothing to contribute, and you're just standing around, and you're like, uh huh, uh huh, smiling politely and nodding and chuckling when appropriate. So you know you can get onto those situations where in your native language where you can't participate in the conversation. That is always going to happen in Chinese. So I think on that concept of having that growth mindset, it's accepting that that there will always be times where your Chinese isn't good enough, but that's not the point. Well, the point is is that you can learn and you can continue to learn Chinese. Right, and this also ties into the thing we were talking about earlier about、uh, motivation and what you're working towards, because like I can remember in the past when my Chinese was getting better and better, especially my pronunciation. Chinese people would be like, "Oh, your Chinese is so good. It's like Dashan." And like Dashan's Chinese is amazing. Mark Roswell. Yeah, I don't hope to ever overcome him. I mean, he's also a performer and he's really good at what he does. He's a comedian as well.、Mm-hmm. And it almost like subconsciously implanted this goal in my mind, like, oh, I have to approach his level of Chinese. But but you know, actually, I don't. I don't like performing. I hate it actually. I I don't mind being in a in a podcast. This is fun. But I do not like, you know, standing on a stage and like reciting poems in Chinese, which I have done, and I do not enjoy.、Uh, what actually gives me joy is talking to people about learning Chinese and creating stuff to help people learn Chinese. So hey, that's what I'm doing. It's my career. But I, I think for、um, a lot of us, when we're in the early stages, we we might have maybe even unconsciously set these goals that aren't really what we want. You know, John. One other point I like to bring up is that you know what's kind of holding us back. You know, we talk about fear. This is a big one, but also I always hear this a lot of like, I don't have time. I don't have time to learn Chinese. I'm I'm busy, and you know, I got this going on, and that may be well and true. Really, what that leads into, it's not that you don't have time. Usually, it's just not a priority.、Mm. Right, you have time, and you think about, all right, I spent、uh, 15 minutes just reading the news or following U.S. election stuff. Which, please. Finish, but I, you know, there's all these things that are going on in, in your life. You're cruising social media. You could have spent some time learning Chinese, and it's just that there's something else was a priority to you. Now, that's not a criticism; it's simply just a fact. 
And so when we're talking about all this fear and, you know, maybe time and other things like that, I think really what we need to address is also looking at the flip side of this. Your purpose is having your reason, finding your motivation to learn Chinese, because not having that is perhaps the biggest thing that holds us back from learning Chinese. And if it's something that we can solve, all these other issues about fear and things like that, a lot of them just kind of fade away. Yeah, actually, when I talk to people about learning Chinese, like clients, I, I try to get them to commit to a certain amount of time every week for their studies to see like noticeable improvement, especially month over month. And uh, this can definitely bring out like, well, actually, maybe it's not that big a priority because I won't devote this time. Or maybe it's not that big of a priority now, but like starting after this point, I will have the time because I won't be doing that anymore. And then I can make it a higher priority. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it's just getting realistic, right? That's right. And you know what I always do say is that you need to have a reason. I, I, gosh, I keep always, I always come back to that is that you got to have a reason to learn. I'm going to flip not having a good reason and talk about that for a second because, you know, some people they'll learn Chinese because they feel that's like what they need to do. You know, it's like need, but this isn't like the choice. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I really wanted to learn. It's more of like, okay, maybe I'm living in China now. I need to learn. Or I'm now in a relationship and I feel like I need to learn for this person. Or mm. maybe you're a student and your parents expect you to learn. And so you need to do it that. And so that's not like the most motivating reason. And sometimes when we're in those type of situations, we'll go through it, but we're just kind of going through the motions mm. and we're not really devoting ourselves to really learning the language. What I suggest, if you're in that situation, find a reason. Like move beyond expectations, move beyond what other people want you to do and find your own personal reason to get out there and start learning Chinese. I'd like to make a special point here for Chinese heritage learners, because, you know, I know a lot of you guys and I know you go through a really hard time, like pressure from your parents and your family. And then if you go to China and you use your broken Chinese, everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Are you stupid? You're Chinese. Why aren't you fluent? And so like not only might they not have a really strong positive motivation, they also have all this like negative demotivating stuff being dumped on them constantly. Mm, that's tough. Jared, every, everything you said is totally true. But I think for Chinese heritage learners, it's especially important. Mm -hmm. So like if all this pressure from your family or whatever, if that's where that's coming from, then you can't get away from that. But maybe you can find another motivation, which is totally separate. And it's, it's almost like your secret reason for learning Chinese that is not what they're throwing at you. This one commonality among these heritage Chinese learners that I always find, almost all of them were sent to like a Chinese class on the weekends. Ah, the weekend class. <laughs> and it's so dry. And it's a bunch of writing characters over and over again. I've talked to teachers that are in these programs and I'm like, look, you know, you're trying to teach these heritage learners like they are native Chinese kids and they're not. And they're giving them materials from like native China and they look Asian and their parents are Chinese, but they're grown up in America or Germany or wherever it is. And they're interested in things that are in their culture, you know, and I've seen some teachers get that. But by and large, those weekend classes. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. That's tough. Most of them just kind of, they look back and they're just really like, oh, they dreaded, they hated that, those classes. Yeah, but they've got a high threshold for pain now, don't they? Well, yes, yes. So I think, you know, and, and kind of pulling this all together, John, and we talked about some things that are holding you back and really kind of a lot of the root of it is your fear. But really a lot of these other things that are holding you back from learning Chinese, really, if you're going to flip it around, is you look at it, it's just that you maybe didn't find that real reason, your real motivation, a purpose to learn. And that is a underlying thing that I've heard in all the interviews, John, that I've done on this podcast is just like anyone who's achieved a high level of proficiency in Chinese had a reason. They had a purpose. They had something that was going on in their lives that really kept them motivated to push and find higher levels of Chinese. Totally. And um, I would also just like to remind everyone one more time, this question can be useful. If you wake up tomorrow totally fluent in Chinese, what are you going to do with it? Well, John, what if I woke up tomorrow morning and I was totally fluent in Thai? I don't know. You need to start learning and we'll do a Thai podcast. All right. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. 
Our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Merchandise. So these are not the books that you know. Woohoo! We have got a new line of merchandise. You got to check it out on our website. It's mandarincompanion.com. And we have a, a lot of fun designs that people are enjoying. People are buying it. And guys, these are not pictures of me and Jared that we're asking you to buy and put on your on your body. No. Hey, maybe, maybe we could do that, John. Yeah. No. These are these are products. <laughs> for example, a shirt that tells people to talk to you in Chinese. And then when you wear this, you magically have Chinese conversations everywhere you go. Amazing. Magic. It just works like magic. In fact, that t-shirt's been very popular, by the way. Yeah. In fact, I want to expand on that one because there's so many things we can do. Chinese people are just waiting for you to wear the right shirt so they can talk to you in Chinese. That's right. But we have a whole bunch of other shirts. We have one that has Obama on it, and it says Butsuo, right? Then we've got the Jugga shirt. I Dude, I was actually I was wearing this shirt. This, this guy pointing at his hand, and we have it says Jugga on it. And it was in characters, and this guy, he said to me, he says, he says what does your shirt mean? I said, this. I pointed to it. He's like, he says, yeah, that. And I said, this. That's what it meant, <laughs> Jugga. Anyway. So I, I think one of the things I like about this merch is that when you show them the Chinese people, they're just like, huh? Like like the Jugga oh, shirt is a good oh, example. It's true. So, okay, okay. So these shirts, they're guaranteed to get a laugh from all your Chinese learning friends, but they're going to confuse everyone who doesn't speak Chinese, and it's going to be patently non-funny to native Chinese. Which, by the way, is another reason for them to talk to you. Like, do you know what this means? Do you realize this is confusing to me? And then that's where you can just start chatting them up. You know, John, in some way, I've kind of realized this is a little bit of our answer to all those chinglish shirts that are floating around China. But they're not bad Chinese. It's all no. good Chinese. It's just not the humor that the average Chinese person is familiar with. That's right. That's right. So you go check it out today. It's perfect for the holidays, so giving out a gift to your loved one or your Chinese-speaking some person or friend or whatever. You can get it today. We ship worldwide to get free shipping on orders over $40 in the USA and Europe and free shipping on orders over $70 for the rest of the world. So you can go get it today. Visit mannercompanion.com and click on the merch. Go, go, go. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? You have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. It's related to uh, TV. So, you know, there's, there's a couple shows I like watching on TV. The Mandalorian. This is us, Rick and Morty, you know, stuff like that. And I usually watch these shows on my Xiaomi TV and they all have Chinese subtitles. And I'm really impressed by these subtitles and the fact that a lot of them are done by these like volunteer freelance subtitle groups. It's these people that are just totally into TV shows and they spend their free time translating the subtitles into as natural and awesome of a Chinese translation as they can. And they do it really quickly so that people who want to follow the shows don't have to wait very long to get the translations. I don't know. I just think it's really cool. It's just such a like an interesting hobby that's related to language learning and so many people can enjoy it. Hey, where can people find those? I don't actually know the names of too many groups. There are several big ones and like some of them are devoted to certain TV shows. If you're really interested, you can find it. Get motivated. Don't be afraid. <laughs> you can read subtitles. <laughs> All right, Jared, rant or rave? John, I have got a rave. Now, we're just coming out of the Thanksgiving week here in the United States. There's something I've just been thinking about, just being thankful. There's a hashtag that's been real popular. It's called the Give Thanks. Something that I've just really been thinking about a lot, John, is just how thankful I am that I had the opportunity to live in Shanghai, China for so many years. I've talked a little bit about my story, but, you know, I didn't have a job that took me over there. Uh, I just chose to go and we just went. I, I, in fact, I turned down some jobs to go to China to look for a job. And I just kind of look at that and recognize that, you know, what a huge impact that's had in my life. I mean, had I not made a crazy decision like that, and it wasn't easy to actually get to China. I went through a, a number of months, but, you know, I definitely wouldn't be here with you, John doing this podcast right now. And Manor Companion definitely wouldn't exist. And just feeling thankful for all the listeners out there, all the positive comments that we get and encouragement and from readers and from podcast listeners. It just really warms my heart. All right. Well, now I feel like I wasted my rave on something frivolous, Jared. So <laughs> thanks a lot. I've just been pensive. I am thankful too. My name is Megan Emirati. 
I am an open source researcher who focuses on Chinese. I write reports on China that are based on publicly available information. So that spans everything from very dense scientific articles about things I probably couldn't fully explain in English to blog posts like Weibo with very informal Chinese. It doesn't take long to recognize that Megan is quite brilliant. But beyond that, you'll also notice her authenticity, enthusiasm, and kindness. And I think my ability to do that comes from the fact that I did complete a PhD in Chinese studies, where I also got to teach Chinese, read Chinese literature. When you first hear about Megan's background, it may be easy to think that learning Chinese was just part of her birthright. However, her story showed me that regardless of potential, it will lie fallow in the field unless you apply yourself and find your own reasons to learn. This is an interview you don't want to miss. Stay with us. Why did you start learning Chinese? I am a second-generation Chinese learner. So my parents、oh. studied Chinese in college in the eighties. They were some of the first U.S. undergraduate students to study abroad in the PRC after the Cultural Revolution. Wow! Yes, they went to Beijing University in nineteen eighty-one and nineteen eighty-two. The open door policy was like just a crack, right? A little tiny crack. You can still see in all their pictures, all the big signs saying, "You know, foreigners not allowed in this area." But they then moved to China after they graduated, and my father was in the foreign service. My mother was a teacher, and I think that gave me a really good background because it gave me a model for Chinese language learners who were non-native speakers, but who continue to learn throughout their lives and who had. Different passions and interests for the language. Now, it does not mean I had any Chinese language abilities or background <laughs> prior to college. <laughs> It's not like you were a heritage learner.、Yeah. I was definitely not. I mean, I heard the language as a child. I I know linguists would say that helped, but I had no vocabulary, and. I started in college because I thought, "Hey, I grew up in China. Shouldn't I be able to back that up with a couple sentences? Let me just take a class or two, and just see that interest and where it takes me." Well, I ended up having my own interest in China, completely different from my family. I fell in love with Chinese theater. I just caught the travel bug in traveling in China. And that led into my interest in doing independent research on China, and that's nothing my parents had ever instructed me to do or expected me to do. Well, I, I'm really curious about your parents here. I mean,、mm -hmm. I've had a few people on our podcast who were like very early Chinese language learners back, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And back then, most people were looking at Japan. You know, they were like、yes. Japanese was the language to learn. But did you have that opportunity at, at an early age to go to China, or what was your first experience? I think really being exposed to Chinese.、Uh, I was born in Hong Kong, and this was while、well, my parents were living in Beijing. But it was so early on in Beijing's history with foreigners or reintroduction of foreigners that the hospitals were not quite. Familiar with having a foreigner give birth there, so yes, my my wife gave birth to two kids in China. That's modern day, so you understand that there can be some cultural、yes. expectations that are different. When I taught at University of California Davis, I taught a lot of students who call themselves ABCs, American-born Chinese, and sometimes I would joke that I was a Chinese-born American because <laughs> I I had to be introduced to American culture. I grew up in China, where my parents were some of the few Americans I knew,、oh. so Chinese culture was. More of the outside environment I grew used to, you know, the food I ate, the songs I heard, the clothes I saw people wearing—all this was you know, Chinese pop culture. And then I had to come back to the U.S. and I remember learning the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, learning Sesame Street or whatever else it was. But again, a lot of those things were more about cultural background, not necessarily linguistic background. So I heard the language around me, but I didn't study it. What age were you when you finally moved back to the states? We moved back here when I was seven. Okay. So I think around like second grade. 
I assume you're going to some international school or? Yes. When I started school, I started in Hong Kong. I went to an international school. And that was the other reason my parents never put me in a Chinese school is because by that point, we were in, back in Hong Kong. They didn't speak any Cantonese. I am currently trying to learn some Cantonese because my it's a hard it's language. very hard. Too many tones. But my seven, right? I think seven it's nine. Tones, I think. Nine. nine but my partner, I ended up, I've had this 10-year relationship with a Hong Konger, and I was born in Hong Kong, so I'm doing my level best to learn Cantonese too. Because right now when I speak with his family, we end up speaking in Mandarin. So it's everyone's yeah, second language. Yeah. yeah. And they're actually very different languages. So it's a little bit of a struggle. So that's really interesting that you had that uh, very early exposure. And I'm curious, were there any memories or anything that you had when, as a child, I think, that maybe kind of carried over or continued your interest into learning Chinese when you got older? It's sort of things that I didn't realize were significant until later because I didn't understand what I was being exposed to. So the biggest example I can give is I ended up studying Chinese theater for a really long time. And my parents were not fans of Beijing opera, hmm. but I I developed into a real theater fan. So I can now remember in childhood hearing Chinese opera on the radio or having my parents, you know, turn the channel after, you know, it's too many butterfly lovers <laughs> going on, Liang <laughs> Shambu and Juing Tai. And so sometimes it's recollections like that, like hearing a song and realizing it is familiar to me. And realizing, oh, it was probably on TV or, you know, we heard people singing it outside our apartment, things like that. You know, I think that very early exposure shows you that, hey, this is normal. Right. And like this is a language that can be learned because mm -hmm. I think, you know, as a lot of us, you know, native whatever speakers who aren't speaking Chinese, it's like, wow, that language is so hard. It's so far out there. People can't ever really learn it. But, you know, that's yes. like the, even the name of our podcast, right? We're on you can learn Chinese. It's like a learnable language. And I think for you at a very early age, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is something you can do. I wouldn't say I inherited any necessary language abilities from my childhood there, but I inherited the confidence that you can have a working knowledge of Chinese if you really work at it. My father has been learning Chinese for over 30 years, and he still does flashcards at night which is an example I aspire to live up to, but sometimes do not. And I'm grateful, really, that they let me choose Chinese for myself. So when did that decision actually happen where you said, hey, I really want to learn this language? It was definitely a casual decision at first. I thought I would just take one year in college and satisfy the curiosity I had. And I just couldn't end up dropping it. I just kept enrolling semester after semester after semester. And what really changed was the moment where I got ownership over my own language learning process. And what happened was I went to a William & Mary, which is this relatively small public university in Virginia, and they gave me a scholarship to research whatever I wanted over the summer. Oh. And so in, it was great. Wow. So instead of enrolling in a traditional study abroad program, I thought, well, I'll just go to China and do research. And so I traveled to Beijing, Shanghai, Taipei, and Hong Kong. And I went to libraries and I went to archives researching Chinese theater. And I'll be honest, my research results, looking back, were not necessarily impressive because I had two years of language. <laughs> Wow. I was just, you know, writing like Shakespeare, Shasher Bia on like yeah. on Pleco and then, you know, copying it down on the computer. Mm. This was very slow going, but it was those moments of success of finding a book I wanted or mm. buying a ticket at a ticket stand that were so rewarding and exciting. And it was also completely my achievement. You know, I didn't have a language coordinator, you know, bringing me to the theater. I didn't have even peers who were with me on some level. I can't believe I actually went off and did this at 19. It was. I think this is, is this is a testament to you, Megan, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> what a motivating learner you were. That's pretty amazing. Well, what I'll say is it's a testament, I think, to the school that they trusted me, that they gave me yeah. that amount of money and they thought it would be valuable because I didn't get any language credits out of it. And I didn't get, you know, 
any of the traditional study abroad curriculum. I wasn't learning from a textbook. But really what it gave me was a sense of confidence and a sense of method. So if you don't know a word or if you don't know how how to ask for something, what are you going to do? Or when someone slides a form across the desk to you and you have to fill it out to get a library card, what do you do? And the achievement in being able to do that, even if it took like half an hour to fill out a form, (laughs) was perhaps more rewarding than if I had enrolled in a study abroad program. Yeah. Because it was more hard work and again, a different kind of result, but it made me more confident in thinking that if I encounter a problem in China, I'm going to know what to do. Mm. And again, that's not so much a language achievement as it is like a methods achievement. It's just seeing that, hey, I can do hard things. Right. And then again, non-native speakers can use library materials. You can buy tickets by yourself. You can go to the police station if you need to. I think sometimes because at least mainland culture, a lot of different culture is set up in the way that they want to give you an intermediary. Got a handler, you know. Yes. They want someone <laughs> to take you to the visa office and to take you to mm-hmm. the the health check, whatever you have to do. There's an implicit assumption that foreigners can't do this by themselves or non-native speakers can't handle those tasks. And, and honestly, sometimes uh, the bureaucracy won't, doesn't want you to do those tasks by yourselves. <laughs> But I think that from a language learning level, if you really give yourself the challenge of you know, ordering something on your own or figuring out an obstacle on your own, that challenge is more rewarding. And you remember all the language that you learned for longer because you finally yeah. did it yourself. I remember like one time in Shanghai, I got a flat tire and I needed <laughs> to go get it you know, repaired. And I was look, quickly looking up, okay, what are the words for flat tire? Right. You know, and it says, you know, you know, ball tie, you know, and, and, I, and I remember it now because I had to go use it. I practiced my mind and I went and used it. And then like, right. I remembered it forever. Right. It's super applicable. And the, that's, that's why we always say, Hey, study things or learn things that are relevant that you're going to be using because they stick with you. Right. Right. And of course it's those moments of, of chaos and challenge and where you remember yeah. things the most, it, your brain realizes, Oh, I've got to learn that flat tire term. This is imprinting in my brain really hard versus learning it in a dialogue in class that that might not stick around for the next two years. Well, I think that's a great story. I totally respect that too, Megan, because I know it's like trying to navigate some of the bureaucracy in China can be challenging, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't say like it's onerous. It's just very foreign. Yes. Not just in Chinese, like language is foreign, but the whole process is foreign. We're not used to it. Right. Why do we have to do that process? And we have to figure all that out. And, you know, those are like good China survival skills. I right. Say. And the, the people behind the desk don't always want you to be the one figuring it out. They would rather the intermediary be there. Like sometimes you can see yeah, in their it's easier eyes. for them. It's quicker, right? Yeah, it's quicker. You have to devote your own time, quite a lot of time to doing it. So if you're in a time crunch, it's not always necessary to learn the language lesson. But I, I do think sometimes students aren't encouraged enough that, that they are capable of doing these things and that they should try. And that mm-hmm. the act of trying in and of itself can actually be really fun and really rewarding. That's one of my big pieces of advice to students is that if you feel confident and you feel like you're ready to take on a challenge, it's almost always worth it. So what happened after this? So you did the mm-hmm. study abroad and you came back. I mean, that sound, this was a formative experience for you, obviously, yes. I can tell. Yes. Right? And so what happened after that? Well, after that, I realized that what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a Chinese researcher. Like I wanted to generate more knowledge about China, knowledge that people speaking English may not know. And that, you know, maybe even knowledge that people in China themselves hadn't come up with. So I realized I wanted to get a PhD because getting a PhD is the best way, I think, to develop that independent research skill. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people get a PhD because they sort of think of it as continuing undergraduate classes. No. But it's not. Yes, (laughs) I would would discourage people from thinking of it in that way. It's not a book club. It's sitting alone in isolation in a library, slowly turning pages. Mm -hmm. And if that's appealing to you, then you can look for ways to turn that into a career. 
But there are more social ways to learn Chinese than that. So this is not a social (laughs) exercise, contrary (laughs) to popular belief. So I started doing these long-term research projects in my undergraduate program. So I could test out that career. And I applied for a PhD right out of undergraduate, which again is something that people discourage you from doing. And and I think there's good reason from that. I I sort of wish I had had more time to just travel to China and, you know, bum around traveling, but I didn't. I, I went right to a graduate degree at the University of California, Davis. And here's where I think I hit my first like frustrating plateau Mm. in Chinese language learning. And I think a lot of people encounter the classic fifth year plateau. You age out of the language curriculum. Mm. You run out of the the classic textbook. There is no longer a necessary peer group for you because everyone at an advanced level is coming from a certain range of expertise or has like a very particular domain of knowledge. I mean, eventually when you get advanced enough, I've ended up in a lot of classes with Singaporeans who've been learning Mandarin Uh, for their whole lives. And they are in a very different boat than me. We're all in something called advanced Chinese, but their Chinese is so much more advanced (laughs) than mine. They're like, we're we're in the same boat. And there's like a a luxury liner and yours is like a little Hong Kong junk, you know? Yes. (laughs) I was once in a class with Singaporeans who I really enjoy. They were my very close friends. But whenever we went into language class, we were suddenly divided. And one of them looked at me and she looked at the textbook that I was struggling to use. And she said, we learned this in kindergarten. (laughs) thanks and i thought (laughs) mr self-esteem builder (laughs) right well it's probably true because you grew up in a country where you know mandarin is used on a much more daily basis so i i hit a really frustrating plateau where in-class instruction was just a very difficult fit i really struggled to find a class that would be appropriate for my level it was either too high or too low And it took me a long time to transform into advocating for my language skills or learning how to learn independently. Mm. I I think this is a common story a lot of people talk about. I do hear this from a lot of learners. You know, they say like it's it's that gap. You're bridging bridging Mm -hmm. the gap from, like you say, curriculum or graded materials. And now how do we bridge into native content? And that can be a big gap. So what did you do? Well, I think I'll say what I did wrong first. (laughs) This is equally as important, right? Yeah. The thing I shouldn't have done is a mindset thing. I started immediately to switch into a mode of, man, I should already know that. Mm -hmm. Anything I would encounter, I thought, well, I'm a quote unquote advanced learner. I should already know that. Mm -hmm. And it was more of a shame mindset than it was curiosity. I I lost my curiosity and I suddenly started feeling embarrassed if someone went to a Chinese restaurant with me and, you know, they point at the wall and they say, what does that say on the sign? And you don't know. You think, oh, I should know that. (laughs) It's pretty easy not to know some of those characters for for sure. Right. Or I'm terrible at reading any kind of handwriting, even in English. And when suddenly when it's... Oh, handwriting, that's the uh, worst. (laughs) It's terrible. But I had this perspective that, again, I should know this. So I like completely retreated into only studying completely by myself, not asking questions, not reaching out for more opportunities, mm-hmm. not feeling free to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think when you're early in your language process and what I just described on that trip, I was free from the fear of making mistakes because the victories felt so good. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't expect to get a library card. So when I got one, it felt great. But suddenly that I was labeled an advanced language learner, I felt like, well, I should be able to you know, get access to the deepest archives or sweet talk the security guard or whatever I thought I should be able to do. Anything less than that high bar felt like a personal failure. And I think that lack of curiosity really hurt me for a number of years in just the concrete learning things. 
that reminds me, there's that concept of having a, a fixed mindset versus growth mindset, right? There's no, I think, you know, overall, like we're always fixed or we're always growth. I mean, and there's different stages in our life, but it sounds like at that stage, you kind of got in that fixed mindset of like, oh, I should be advanced. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything or I'm avoiding things that are going to destroy that image of my level and my yes. mind, you know? Yes. And, and so we can do that, right? I think that's sometimes why we... People may avoid conversation. We don't want right. to. Um, we don't want to, you know, destroy that concept of oh, I am at this level, and therefore, if I can't perform at this level, cognitive dissonance happens. Right? <laughs> yes, and so you you lose opportunities. So what ended up happening, or how did you actually kind of break out of this? I think what broke me out was rediscovering my passion for the material itself. So I, I was afraid of making mistakes, but I ended up finding. Things I wanted to read either for my research or things I wanted to listen to for fun that rekindled the love I had for just experiencing the language without feeling the pressure. So I fell back in love with Chinese reality TV. like brought me back mm. from the edge. That's the, the voice of China, which is a carbon copy of the American TV show, The Voice. Right. <laughs> right. They they might try to pretend there's no copyright infringement, oh, but it's the same. <laughs> there is. Yes. <laughs> and I just genuinely enjoyed watching it every day. So it didn't feel like a task that I had to feel good about or bad about. And then I also, as a Chinese theater researcher, I'd been trying to dig into these very complex Chinese operas and they use classical language. They mm. are very difficult even for native Chinese speakers. But again, I was um, trying to have that elite reputation or that victory. And instead, I found this genre called modern spoken drama. It's called Hua Ju. And that ended up being mm. my research. And I actually really recommend it to people who are learning Chinese and are in that plateau. If you're going from language textbook dialogue and you're suddenly trying to read really deep prose, like my first work of fiction I read in college was Lu Xun, mm -hmm. who is actually kind of a difficult writer. But I started reading as part of my research, these modern Chinese dramas, which were actually written as a way to help modern Chinese people become more literate and practice Putonghua as a Mandarin, as opposed to their dialect. Mm -hmm. So they're written with people who are sort of language learning in mind and their dialogues because they're drama. Wow. So it's a lot more approachable if you're coming from a language textbook model. That's fantastic. Yeah. And as a theater researcher, I loved it. <laughs> I That's love really neat. I love reading stories about, oh no, it turns out, you know, you're my lover, but actually you're secretly my half brother. That's that's a plot from the famous play Thunderstorm. That's much more interesting than forcing yourself to read the news every day, or at least it was yeah. more interesting to me. So it took some self-discovery and it, it took some steps back. It, it was important for me to be a little easier on myself. And instead of forcing myself to study classical Chinese, which it turns out I don't have a necessary passion for, I just followed the things that I was really enjoying about the language. Because that passion is going to take you a lot farther than any sense of obligation. You could sum up a lot of things I've just learned from doing this interviews with all these people on the podcast and, and just what you said there. Mm -hmm. is, is that is that passion, that interest will fuel you through the hard times. Yes. And, you know, we advocate extensive reading level, like reading at a high level of comprehension. Right. And the only times I really say, okay, well, maybe you can read at a much lower level comprehension is if you're super motivated. Yes, I totally agree. I started reading Harry Potter in Chinese when it was way above my language ability because I do warn people, translations use very strange Chinese and especially Harry a fantasy Potter. series. <laughs> yes, everyone's name is strange. The spells are weird. Even description of magic or the description of an environment, yeah. all of that is difficult. Especially like, you know, like Harry Potter, like there's so many things about that whole genre that are just have, you know, Western culture embedded into them that mm -hmm. just don't translate well or don't even have words in Chinese. So they got to do transliterations and stuff. And Yes. Yeah, so was it the best way for me to absorb Chinese culture? No. But was it motivating enough for me to spend an hour reading it? Yes. 
And it was also something because I already knew the plot that I could put down when I got frustrated and then pick it up again. One thing I did that I think people could consider or that might motivate them is I started writing the date and time when I worked on a page or when I was reading something and it became a kind of diary. You can see the earlier pages. It was just taking me hours to get through a paragraph and you can see the whole page is covered with notes because I didn't know any of the vocabulary, but the later pages, hundred pages later, however long it took me, you can see it's filled with white space because I knew the vocabulary. You can see that I was reading a chapter in a day instead of a page and I actually, when I was teaching Mandarin, I let my students pass that book around and gave them an example saying, you know, sometimes language learning takes this long, but if you give yourself a way to track it, even though it's embarrassing, maybe to look back and hear, you know, if you record yourself, you can hear yourself make mistakes. If you take notes like this, you can see all the words that you keep forgetting and you're looking up over and over again, but it, it gives you a sense of progress that's more detailed than just, oh, I read a book. There's so many victories. Yes. There's so many smaller victories in finishing a book than just, it took me this long to read it and I'm done. That is a fantastic, this is something we always talk about on the podcast, John and I, we're always banging the drum about (laughs) reading speed, right? And how much you're actually reading, actually looking at periods of time, how long you can sit and read without, you know, before your brain just gives up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, I had never thought about that before. That's fantastic. What was the reaction from your students when you were able to show them that book that you read and, and the progress that you made throughout it? They were excited. I think it gives them an example of someone who is constantly in the process of learning a language. So when I was teaching Mandarin, I was very careful to say, I'm not going to be your model for a perfect accent because I'm not a native speaker and I, I never will be. But I can be your model for how someone should approach a lifetime of learning and how you can break down your goals incrementally and, and keep pushing yourself. So I have a lifetime experience of learning Mandarin. I had to fight for this. I had to work for it. And it's achievable for you. So I think in some ways it made the process of learning Mandarin approachable to people who were still thinking of it as an all or nothing thing, Mm. like a switch. I was not fluent in Chinese and then I flipped the switch and now I am fluent in air quotes in Chinese. Yeah. And instead showing them that this is a drawn out process with lots of little victories along the way. You know, whenever someone asks me, says, so, oh, you speak Chinese. Are you fluent? I say, (sighs) fluent is a very relative term. (laughs) I know. I have a little spiel about it. Okay. My spiel about being fluent is that no one is truly completely fluent in any language. Mm. So if you asked me to give a speech in English about economics, I could not do it. I don't know anything about economics in English, but if you ask a non-native speaker of English, I'm sure there are plenty of people who could do that. They are fluent in that domain. If you ask a lot of Chinese people to give you a speech about Chinese opera, a lot of them would not be able to do it because it's not relevant to their lives. But I could. That doesn't mean that I'm more fluent than those native Chinese speakers, but it means that I developed a certain little domain of knowledge that I cultivated. And so I prefer to say that I am conversational, that I can have a lot of different conversations with people that if I don't know a particular vocabulary term, I can kind of work my way around it or describe something. And that's always been the goal I've been reaching for. Can I communicate with people and can I learn new domains of knowledge when I have gaps? But I've decided to no longer strive for fluency because I don't even have fluency in English. Yeah, that's a fantastic perspective. Sometimes John and I, we present a bit of a concept called, you know, fluency now. Mm-hmm. And it's just fluent in what you know right. right right now, right? So, and that's the difference between knowledge and proficiency. Like you may yeah. know all this, but are you proficient in it? Are you fluent in speaking about it? And so if you only know 500 words in Chinese, we'll be fluent in those 500 words. Yes. But once again, it's all relative. You know, we same like Really, the truth is you're conversational, right? Right. But, but, you know, but can you fluent in economics, fluent in horticulture or whatever it is? And that's something I try to encourage people to feel is that I think some people want to wait until they're fluent, like they're, they're delaying something. They're delaying their trip or they're delaying a statement of confidence that they have expertise in something because they want to wait until they're fluent. And I really want to encourage people 
to tackle the subjects and tasks that they want to tackle right now, just as you're saying, because the act of really conquering it will gain you the linguistic fluency you're looking for. So as I keep talking about with my trip to China, if I had waited until I knew every single term related to a library to finally go to a library, that trip wouldn't be useful. Yeah, you would have never made it to the library. (laughs) No, it's that act of going and trying to figure out how to log into a computer and trying to learn how to use the, the typing system they have integrated into their computer. All of that is an act of figuring out the language in and of itself. So if you're interested in a topic, I think you should have the confidence to just go see what you can learn about it in Chinese now instead of waiting for a future date. So I want to hit something just kind of straight on the head from you and get your perspective is what do you feel it has been the impact of literacy on your language development? Well, again, my career is very reading focused. I think of four skills. So listening, speaking, reading, writing. Reading is probably my strongest of the four. And that's because I practice it the most. It's also probably because I enjoy it the most. Like to me, recognizing each character in a sentence and, you know, kind of going forward, it feels like a logic puzzle that I'm getting. I I get a real sense of reward from reading itself that other people get a little bit more from speaking. So for me, that's been kind of a motivating factor to keeping me learning the language. And I should be clear, if I wasn't working on speaking at the same time, my reading skills would have stagnated. So I work on all my skills at once, but reading is the one that keeps pushing me forward. I think I really enjoy it because, well, I enjoy reading in English too. It's probably, you know, the passion that keeps me learning different things, but also because I really enjoy written Chinese. I like Chinese authors from the really good ones like Lu Xun or Eileen Chang, Zhang Eileen, to right now I'm reading some really trashy, like time traveling, court intrigue, murder (laughs) mystery, you know, that kind of thing. But overall, I also like what I was talking about before, where I I think reading is the skill where I can really track my progress the most. It also feels very individual and personal to me. I know if I've read something correctly or not, and I don't need to have a teacher, you know, to correct my tones or tell me that she didn't understand what I was saying, that with reading, I get to challenge myself and test myself and feel rewarded all at once. So maybe it's the introvert in me. But reading is really the skill that I feel I can practice with the most joy and competency. And maybe it's that sense of control. Mm -hmm. I can control my reading experience. I can find new things to read and I can succeed or fail all on my own. So it feels like a very self-driven activity. You can always go back and read a sentence, but it's always hard to stop someone else and say, hey, could you repeat that again and again? That's right. (laughs) Yes, right. Right. So you can get that repetition however many times you need, or you can take out Pleco and you can look at the dictionary or you can highlight it and take notes. The pace doesn't feel as intimidating as the pace when you're speaking or listening, where it feels more win or lose just in that moment. Well, Megan, what advice would you give to someone who's starting to learn Chinese right now? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest advice is to maintain your sense of curiosity and to never feel as if you're striving for some sort of perfection that you then mar or impede with a mistake. That's not how language learning works. That, in fact, you're going to make thousands upon thousands of mistakes as you learn the language, and that's just part of the process. But the curiosity and the sense of accomplishment should really be what fuels you. And the mistakes, the challenges that you greet along the way, those are the stories you'll tell to your friends in 10 years. That's what you're going to laugh about when you have more (laughs) fluency. I know it seems intimidating on the face of it, but really the mistakes that you make are in some ways more impactful to your learning than even like the 100% you get on your quiz. So I would really encourage people to continue that sense of curiosity And with that, the sense of exploration, because we've talked about it. If you haven't already hit that plateau, it will probably come at some time. It's it's good to know you to expect it. And the thing that's going to get you through is that you will advocate for yourself and you're going to figure out what really motivates or interests you in the language. 
So I know it's easy to focus on lack. Oh, I don't know that word. I didn't know that word. I didn't remember it. But really, the more proper focus is to think about gains, what you have learned, what you can say, what you can read. And there are endless possibilities there. Mm-hmm. And there are endless domains to get expertise over. You know, even someone you really look up to and you think they're a perfect Chinese speaker, there are always words that you can learn that they probably never have known. Yeah, quite so. <laughs> right. There's internet slang that I'm never really going to completely get the hang of. There are words for birds and machinery and science that there are endless domains that you can have expertise over. And it's easier to think of those things as potentials rather than some sort of lack, some sort of like vocabulary list of things you don't know yet. That's an exciting potential, not an indictment of your learning so far. Wow. Words from a woman who knows. So Megan, if anyone wants to connect with you, how can they find you? The easiest way is probably finding me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Megan Emirati, and I can spell that because my name is difficult. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, great. Put it in the show notes and feel free to reach out. I think my pinned thread right now is a little thread on learning Chinese, and my recommendations is someone who's been a learner and a teacher and still feels like both of those roles all the time. So please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to hear from people. Well, thanks so much, Megan. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I loved being here. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, hairdresser, comedian, IT specialist, electrician, handyman, landscaper, sous chef, mechanic, plumber, repairman, dishwasher, problem solver, and that one guy named Greg. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. If you feel like you've got an interesting story to tell about learning Chinese, reach out to us. If we're desperate enough, we just might get you on the podcast. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. I'd like to thank our guests, Megan Amorati, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Patton. See you next time.